This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Audio Dramatics on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's bi-monthly show about the world of audio drama. In today's program, I'm looking at Doctor Who spin-offs, a couple of bootleg Doctor Who productions, and also one of the writers of the official licensed version of Doctor Who, produced on audio by Big Finish Productions. Later in the program, I'll be talking to Christian Eriksson, a musician from Minnesota, originally with the band The Astronaut's Wife, who has formed a new supergroup with other musicians from the area called The Sever Team, has created a concept album based on the classic 1984 Doctor Who episode, The Caves of Androzani. I'm also talking to Emma Beebe, who has co-written with Gordon Rennie three four-part Doctor Who serials for Big Finish Productions, two with Peter Davison's Fifth Doctor and one with Sylvester McCoy as the Seventh Doctor. However, to start off with, I'm talking to Brendan Shepard from Word of Mouth Productions, Brendan has produced a trio of Doctor Who dramas featuring the Doctor as a young man having his first adventures in time and space. The first of the trilogy, One Fine Time Lord, was released in November 2013 for the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, with all proceeds from the download going to Children in Need. Subsequently, Brendan has produced two sequels, writing the third instalment, and set up a production company producing adaptations of such classics as A Christmas Carol, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein and Dracula. To give you a flavour of his first Doctor Who production, here's an extract from One Fine Time Lord. Today, as we all stand united here in the great presidium of the Time Lords, today we owe a debt of everlasting gratitude to the one man who has ushered in this new era of peace for the people of Gallifrey. We now present the Eternity Award to Lord Archeron. My mind opens, my vision soars. Beyond here, beyond now. Beyond here, beyond now. What do you see? A boy. A boy. How shall I recognize him? When you see him, you will know. His obsession for Lord Archeron is becoming a bit of a worry. Oh, wow. Thanks, Mother. Yeah! Word of Mouth Productions, I guess, has been around uh, for nearly five years now, as you released your first production, One Fine Time Lord, uh, in November 2013. That's right. Um, I guess with that production, the aim was, uh, obviously, to bring out something that celebrated the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. But since then, you've branched out into all sorts of other audio plays, including adaptations of A Christmas Carol, Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, But I was wondering if you could talk about how that first production came about. Uh, One Fine Time Lord? Yeah. Um, It came about because I have been working on the Doctor Who DVD range for, um, well, since 2006. And so I was quite... Um, involved in the whole Doctor Who world for quite a long time. And then what happened was uh, uh, when the 50th anniversary came out, I just thought 
I originally pitched to the BBC an idea of, you know, what about the Doctor as a young man? Can we not have a story uh, that was, uh, you know, about him as a young person on Gallifrey? And they turned the idea down, uh, probably quite rightly. Um, <laughs> but um, but actually, I, I said, you know, look, can I pursue it as a radio drama? Because I think actually it'd be a really good idea. And they said yes. And so what happened was hmm. um, I branched out on my own, really, to do it. And um, and sort of formed the company. But, um, but I then approached an executive producer who'd been a, who'd been a Radio 4 uh you know, producer, David Clouter, and I said to him, you know, look, actually, what we could do is we could do this for Children in Need. And I said, well, wouldn't it be fun if we had a Children in Need, Doctor Who, unique audio drama? Mm. And he agreed. And then what we had to do was we had to get a whole pile of cast together who would be willing to work for free. And we had to get studios together. And luckily, Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge David knew quite well, and um, I, we got in touch with him, and they agreed to do it, provided that the producer or one of the producers was uh, was one of their students. Hmm. And I said, "Well, why don't we just go the whole hog?" And then if she's if this producer whose name was Kim, um, I said, "If she wants to come on board, then we'll just have a whole student." Um, guys being the crew and they said yeah that sounds like a good idea so we did a whole weekend of casting and we saw loads and loads and loads of people Doctor Who Online got involved and they posted on our auditions in Cambridge and we spent a whole weekend auditioning oh what felt like hundreds but it was probably not that many uh, people and then um, and then we made it I wrote it and then we made it and uh we had a great, we had great fun, and that then spawned off two more after that, which wasn't intentional. <laughs> um, but that's pretty much how it happened, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah so you said that you were working on the Doctor Who DVDs in what capacity? Yeah. So I was a produ- I was one of the producers and directors ah, of the so, additional uh, material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I started working on. Uh, one that's just come out of Blu-ray, actually, <laughs> um, Robot. Um, ah. And then I then worked, I did, oh, God, I did loads. I did, um, uh, I started making smaller features. So I did The Deadly Assassin. And I did the, they gave me my first one, which was The Time Warrior, which I was completely um, responsible for. So obviously <laughs> working on those DVDs then gave you a relationship with the BBC because it just it yeah. occurs to me that not anybody can go to the BBC and say, how about I do an audio uh, drama about the early days of Doctor Who? Um, yeah. I guess also, was it in the discussion that it would always be for charity in order for you, for you to be able to get the licence to do this? Yes, yes, it was. Um, because the licence to produce audio was with another company, mm. Um uh, a big finish and when I pitched that the only way I could get it through was to do it through charity but actually I had pitched it as a charity thing so I'd kind of inadvertently did myself a favor <laughs> um, and the, the proceeding to because there were three of them in total um, that it, it that was the way we got them through which was which was which was through charity, but I um, yeah I did have a good relationship. I'd worked for the BBC for a few years before that anyway, and I'd won a BAFTA mm. um, in the children's department uh, for my work, and that was really good. Um, and I got my own show. It was amazing. I, I won this BAFTA for a show we did 
in 2004. And then what happened was that show was cancelled. BBC made a really funny decision to put it on Saturday morning, and just before it went on Saturday morning, they cancelled it. Hmm. It didn't really give a reason other than they didn't like the animation. But, of course, I still had a couple of years left on my contract, so they suddenly found themselves with me (laughs) and nothing to do. So I was literally, literally twiddling my fingers doing nothing. Um, And then they offered me my own programme, which was CBBC Extra, which is still on air today. Hmm. And basically I was given the premise, what it had to be, and basically it was up to me to come up with the title. And and I basically ran it from a one-man show to... Uh, you know, a full production crew, but it was whilst working on that that I got in with um, Russell T. Davies and Julie Gardner and the rest of them and Phil Collinson and, and that kind of love. So that started my relationship with with, um, with the TARDIS, as it were. Mm, nice. And even listening to the first production, One Fine Time Lord, it's obvious that the students that you worked with uh, from Anglia Ruskin have done a very uh, a very good job. Mm, yeah, they were excellent. Yeah, Jared, Jared was the um, Jared. Um, he did most of the. I put the scenes together. The way it worked was I edited the scenes together, and then Jared did almost all of the post production. So he, you know, I put the scenes together with the takes that I wanted, and then delivered him it scene by scene, and then he put it all together with all the sound effects and everything. And he has done really well for himself. He was a student when we started working with him. And then we worked with him on year two and year three. And now he is a producer, I think, at KISS FM. <laughs> so he, he did really well for himself off the back of that. And was, he was phenomenal, really, really great. And so was Kim. She was a great producer, actually. Mm. And we tended to end up using the same people. And in fact, I think one of the Anglo Ruskin students who was in his final year when we did the first one ended up producing the third one, mm. James Amy. So that was really nice. So it really was kind of a production company that you were founding even then. Yeah, I suppose it was. Yeah, I didn't even realise that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, casting is an incredibly important part of it, and casting the Doctor in particular. Was that a torturous yeah. process, you know, knowing that it's such an iconic part and the guy that you did cast would be following in the footsteps or proceeding in the footsteps uh, of so yeah. many other fine actors? Yes, it was. Um it was, but, you know, I, I I took on the mentality that actually nobody knows what the Doctor was like as a young guy. Mm. And therefore, I imagine him to have been quite brash and bold and, you know, and out there. And so therefore, I didn't really think, well, he's got to be like William Hartnell or he's got to be like Patrick Triton or anything like that. Mm. I just thought, actually, no, he's a young man and he's hormones are probably all over the place and whatnot. So I'm just going to portray him as a typical teenager. Actually, what was harder was portraying the doctor's parents. Mm. Um, I thought, I remember when we wrote that and I wrote these characters in who were going to be his mum and dad. And I just thought this is going to be hugely controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think anyone would care that much about the doctor. He was going to reveal that until the very end of the plot anyway. Mm. Um, uh, but I just thought, oh, God, you know, when they realize who this is, all of a sudden it's going to be, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's going to be, oh, my God, we have just been listening to the doctor's mum and dad. Interestingly enough, though, nobody said anything about mm. it. <laughs> and we had to send all the scripts off for, um, I, we had to send the scripts to um, 
to the BBC to get them signed off, and I never got any changes back. Hmm. I never made any changes. Even Stephen Moffat, when he came along, at least there was no notes or anything. So they just went, yeah, that's fine. Oh, nice. So, which was good, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were you ever tempted to, and this seems a strange thing to say, uh, not make it about the Doctor? Because in listening to it, it did occur to me that it would work equally well if it turned out you were listening to the Master as a young man who started off as a hero. Yeah, well, I mean, I would argue that the stories aren't about the Doctor anyway. It's no, not sure. a story about the Doctor. It's a story about Archeron, mm. um, you know, the, the, the Gallifrey historian. And I remember having a discussion with the Doctor Who fan who was um, who was puzzled. You know, I've never heard, I'd never heard of Archeron. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, he's, he's in there. And I tried to convince him that he was in, a, a, you know, the Time Lord lore if you read a certain book. Of course he wasn't. I just made him up. Uh, but, yeah, I... I um, I think in the first one, it was a very deliberate decision to put the Doctor in it. Mm. It was, I don't think the Doctor appeared in the second one, which I thought was the best of all of them. Mm. Um, of course, he makes a very brief appearance at the end of the third one. So it, it, it was, um, I, I, because it was the 50th anniversary, it kind of had to be about the Doctor, I guess. Mm. Um, had, or at least the Doctor had to be in it. It was just a unique one to do it, mm. I guess. Mm. So, like you said, uh, you did make a trilogy. Uh, the second yeah. one goes further into the past of Gallifrey, and then the third yeah. one brings the story up to uh, a point beyond the end of the Time War. So, right. I mean, you know, a lot of people these days, when they bring out sequels, they say, oh, it was always intended to be a trilogy. Um, yeah. But in terms of you making a trilogy, were you thinking of, of doing so right from the start? Or was it the no. positive response? No. Yeah, no, we definitely weren't. Um, it, it, the I, I I had a couple of more ideas, um, but it was never ever intended to be a trilogy. But by the time we started writing Dark Times, I thought actually, do you know what? We could do this afterwards, and and everyone kept saying, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> but I know, but I, it, you know, you could have went on and made loads and loads more of them. To be fair, we could have made, and I think the cast would have absolutely loved to have made one a year. Mm. Um, but the point was you know, why? <laughs> I just kept saying, you know, right, we've got we've got something that's successful. Um and Dark Times I think the second one was definitely um probably the best I I think in terms of downloads, the first one was the best. It had over a hundred thousand. And the wow. but the second one was I think the best story wise. Um, you know, because I I had given this rich list of ingredients to Justin uh, who was the writer, and then um, and then I wrote the last one. Um, so it was never intended to be a trilogy, but it kind of became that way because I just thought um, after dark times, I just thought it, it, you know that we need to do one more just to finish it all off. And that's I love that line in the last one where she, where Sean um, you know just turns and says you know oh, we've been all assembled together one last time, and it was lovely because the cast of dark times was completely different to the cast of Once Upon a Time Lord. Huh. And it was really weird, two years later, bringing them all together hmm. <laughs> for the last one. So hmm. Nice. And, and for the last one, for Eternity Rises, uh, you got a cameo by Terry Malloy as well. That's right, yeah. yeah. Terry had done... Um, Terry had done... At that point, Terry had done Christmas Carol. Was it Christmas Carol he'd done for us in okay. Word of Life? Or was it... Um, I think he did the Spirits of Christmas, 
and which was the prequel to Christmas Carol, which we got Justin to write. And then he did Christmas Carol, and then I just rang him one day because he said, because when he was in my house recording uh, those two stories, he, he said, you know, if you ever got anything else, you know, I'll happily do it. And I said, well, I've got this. And he read it and he went, oh, I like that. And I <laughs> said, okay, go for it. And actually, interestingly enough, I had approached and spoken to Peter Davison and Sarah Sutton about the first one mm. because I wanted them to play the Doctor's mum and dad. Huh. Okay. Um, and Peter, Peter read the script and very, very kindly, he gave me a lovely phone call. And he just said, I just don't think it'll work because I'm just too well known as the doctor. <laughs> and then um, and I can't remember, I did speak to Sarah something. I think she wasn't available on the dates that we were doing it. But Colin Baker spoke to the cast of Eternity Rises before we shot it. So when we did the official read through, I got Colin Baker to, you know, um, give them all a ring and give them all a pep talk about what it's like to record drama and how oh. we're all doing a great job. And then uh, Colin just bless him, I just rang him up about an hour before and said, hey, I'm doing the sweet three. <laughs> Colin's such a sport. He went, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I'll do that. And he, he did that, which was lovely. It was so nice. Oh, bless him. So actually, then, um, some of your other productions with uh, named stars, such as Terry Malloy, Sophie Aldred, Christopher Ryan, yeah. Uh, yeah. came in between those early productions. Was it that other people listened to On Fine Time Lord and realised, actually, you've got a good team here, uh, I'll happily yeah. work with you. Yes. Uh, they did want to hear some of the stuff for, that we'd made before. And that we made Guy Fox was one of the early ones with Virginia hmm. Byron, um, who's a great theatrical actress. And uh, interesting enough, she didn't want to do it. <laughs> hmm. uh, but I convinced her. Cause she was like, but I'm, a, but I'm a female narrator doing a man part. And I said, hey, you know, it's the 21st century. Uh, and... Um, and so she, she did that. Yeah, and they did want to hear it, and they didn't want to hear the quality of our work. But I have to say, I think what the good thing was, nobody made any comments. You know, nobody nobody was saying, oh, this stuff sounds a bit amateurish or whatever. Nobody ever said that. Um, and a lot of them, because they'd worked on the Doctor Who thing, it was nice to give them roles in in the... In the, in the stuff that we made for Word of Mice. And of course, when Endurance came along, which was our big 12-part epic drama, um, we were able to repay a lot of favours of people who'd worked for free on the Doctor Who stuff, and we were able to pay them and, you know, and do it properly. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that was, you know. Hmm. Um, and obviously we've been talking about your prequels to Doctor Who. Uh, did you upset any Dickens fans by doing a prequel to A Christmas Carol? We got no feedback whatsoever. Oh dear! <laughs> Nobody ever said. But it did. It did. It just enough the sales of it. It did sell just as many. Hmm. So I think that people liked it. You know, it was a bit of fun anyway. So, uh, and that's all it was meant to be. It was a bit of fun. Hmm. Um, so no, we never got any feedback on it. <laughs> so in terms of your other productions, it's a mixture of adaptations of classics. Uh, indeed, you've got productions of Dracula and Frankenstein coming out in the near future. And then, yes. like you said, uh, epic original stories like Endurance. Is that basically yeah. the um, the plan for the company to go back and forth between known titles and then uh, new work as well? Yes, we've got... We've, we've got... Um, the H.G. Wells stuff is all being done. Um, but, we're, I mean, the thing that was unique to the company was the fact that it was the original novel 
but every time an actor, every time a character spoke to it was a different actor. Mm. Um, and th- that posed a lot of problems in the beginning when we only have one mic. And, uh, and you know, people were uh, not available at the same time. And But of course, as we got bigger, we got more microphones. And, um, you know, we got were able to get people together that just the editing time was shorter. Um, so uh, I don't think there aren't any plans at the moment to make um, there aren't any plans at the moment to make any sort of new material. It's all going to be old material. What we have branched out into now is making short films and mm. sort of moving into video. Um, and we have got a... Uh, and I, we've done two already. We've made two and we've finished this production. Um, and we've got on YouTube now. Um, and we've got another big sort of we're going to do another Doctor Who one, I think. Hmm. Um, I had this idea of, well, we've done the Doctor as a young man, um, and I'm currently writing another script with Justin just as a pilot just to see what the BBC will make of it. And see, I mean, they don't need to give us their approval, hmm. but I always like to do it because, you know, we've had such a good relationship with them in the past. And sometimes you can get back really good stuff. You know, sometimes they'll just say, no, can you hold off doing this because we're doing that? Or, you know, um, I don't know anything about the new production team, but um, well, I have this idea of, well, what if, um, uh, what if a character um, was a fan of the Doctors? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, we're, we're so obsessed with Doctor Who fans. Well, what actually... If this guy would grew up on Gallifrey and all he heard was about hmm. the doctor this and the doctor that, the doctor the other, and he started to sort of, you know, you, I just thought I said to Justin the other week in a script conference, where I said to him, what if actually he worked in the Matrix and actually looked at some hmm. of the doctor's past adventures, and he got so inspired that actually what he did was he tampered with a TARDIS, turned it into a police box, and actually went travelling himself. But <laughs> the thing is, what he discovers is. And actually, he's crap at it, hmm. and uh, you know he's 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 causing more trouble than he's that, is, that you know he's learning things, and you know. And so we could actually make quite a little gritty little pilot there, um, that isn't you know that people actually die and there are consequences and all that. And Justin just went, "Oh my god, that's a great idea!" Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's cool. So we're going to try it. We're going to see. We're off the back of these two short films that we've made, which are really good, uh, which work really well. We're going to we're going to try it, and so hopefully put it into production in August, um, and pop it on the site and see what people think. They might hate it; they might just see it as a fan film. But it's not to make money; it's just for fun. So uh, that's that's the idea, anyway. Hmm. Fantastic. Cool. Well, uh, I think that'll do nicely. Um, it was lovely to talk to you, and I hope that this production in August goes well. Mm. I just thought it was a funny idea, mm. um, and. Um, Justin, who is very, very, very careful about scripts that he writes when he gets commissions from me or whatever, I he's very cautious, and I just said, you know, look, we can work on this one together, and uh, and and he is loving it. He's he's really enjoying this idea of putting all these Doctor Who puns in because <laughs> he can, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and I just thought it was a, quite a quirky idea. It was a nice idea. Then rather than see another fan running about in Tom Baker's scarf, it was just interesting idea that the only thing he's copied is the police box <laughs> indeed you know yeah <laughs> that's anyway yeah. um but there you go thank you very much for more information about word of mouth productions 
please go to wordofmouthproductions.co.uk where you can download the three Doctor Who dramas, One Fine Time Lord, Dark Times and Eternity Rises, and hopefully you'll donate to Children in Need to thank the production team for making these great audio dramas. And also on their website you can find original productions such as Endurance and The Train of Thoughts, and adaptations of the likes of A Christmas Carol, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Frankenstein. While Brendan's productions have the permission of the BBC to feature new adventures of the Doctor, next I'm talking to writer Emma Beebe about the three stories that she's co-written with writer Gordon Rennie and others for Big Finish Productions, a company who produce licensed versions of Doctor Who on audio, featuring various members of the original cast, including Doctors such as Tom Baker, Paul McGann and John Hurt reprising the role. And Emma has co-written two stories for Peter Davison, A Thousand and One Nights and Tombship, as well as an adventure called The Doomsday Quatrain for Sylvester McCoy. Emma has a background in writing comic strips with co-writer Gordon Rennie in the pages of 2000 AD on such strips as Survival Geeks and Judge Anderson. The mixture of sci-fi, satire, horror and historical 2000 AD stories seem an ideal background for writing new adventures for classic Doctors, and I'll be talking to Emma about all of her ideas for Doctor Who, following an extract from the trailer for A Thousand and One Nights. I call that a poor ending indeed. Have patience, O Sultan. This Doctor does hunt demons. Yes, and uses magical enchantments to... The Doctor escaped! He always escapes. Not from my dungeons, Ha! Stone walls do not a prison make now. And what is the meaning of this intrusion? Ah. God! Help! There's a criminal here in my room! Help! You have so many stories about this doctor. So many things I still need to know about. Come. Let go of me. Perhaps we can both walk in its gardens again after I have found my TARDIS. Your TARDIS? What do you mean, your TARDIS? With the Doctor Who audios that you co-wrote with Gordon, in a way it kind of reflects 2000 AD, in that in 2000 AD you can have a comedic strip next to a serious fantasy strip, next to a kind of war story, next to space opera. And so with your three Doctor Who stories, you have a reworking of A Thousand and One Nights, you have Sylvester McCoy meeting Nostradamus in a tale with giant crocodiles, and you have kind of a pastiche of um, tomb raiding sagas from kind of like Howard <laughs> Carter, but set on a spaceship. So, I mean, that that's kind of, I guess, one of the joys of uh, writing Doctor Who is that even though the format has kind of things set in stone, you know, the Doctor and the TARDIS, in terms of genre, it can be pretty much whatever you like. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we, for for Doctor Who, you do get some instruction. Um, you know, you might be told you can't do uh, history, you can't do established monsters. Um, they want something in space, something really sci-fi-ish. Uh, you know, there's quite often a few uh, sort of hoops to jump through before you can come up with a story but um but that helps you helps you to go in a direction because you say you can do absolutely anything so mm. having having a bit of a, a prompt is is good fun um and yeah i think um i think dr who is intrinsically good fun so i uh, get you to yeah do 
difficult to to major. It's really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a highlight for me. Um, And yeah, I mean, the Nostradamus uh, thing was uh, that, I mean, that actually came out of a a different idea, which uh, was the the first one we had um, accepted for it, where there was actually going to be, because spoilers, you find out that the, uh, it's not actually Earth, and it's a whole. It's like a practice planet that can form anywhere, mm. can form any planet at one moment of time. Spoilers. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it's been it's been out for a very long time. I right? know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so originally it was going to be that the Doctor was on Earth at the time that it was scanned, so there was going to be this second Doctor mm. uh, who was point of view the story was going to be from and then finds out that he's not really the real doctor huh. uh, and would then die because I thought well what would be more fun than killing the doctor mm. so that was really what I wanted to do and I found a way to do it and then I couldn't do it because they'd already had a, a story with a second doctor in it recently and so we were very excited about it but we couldn't we couldn't do it so we went with the whole uh, Nostradamus angle instead so there you go evolution of stories <laughs> so I never got to kill off the doctor hmm. <laughs> but it was obviously um, kind of an idea that you wanted to return to because in A Thousand and One Nights you have um, Alexander Siddig becoming a doppelganger doctor as well. Yes, yeah, that was fun. I mean, that, when we heard about the casting, that was just, that was just great. Um, I mean, that was more trying to take on this, uh, this identity um, of the doctor and finding himself not equal to the task at all and mm. uh, so yeah you know it's only there's only one doctor <laughs> although the only complaint that i would have about a thousand and one nights is that i'd have liked to have heard like maybe a 10 minute mini episode where we hear uh alexander sigurd uh doctor screwing up an adventure by trying to be the doctor <laughs> and failing you know? <laughs> no right yes unfortunately time <laughs> did not quite allow that much and we didn't know we were going to get them um, that sort of phenomenal talent. So we just, yeah, we had what we had. But yes, uh, we tried to compress that into a short period of time so, you know, it screws up really, really fast. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting as well that... um... Because Big Finish, um, I don't know if they're going to continue doing it, but for a while we're doing this one release a year where it was four separate one-off episodes. Uh, you took that idea, but also incorporated uh, the idea of Scheherazade telling those stories within a greater narrative. Um, as yeah. such, did you choose the other writers that were creating the stories within your narrative, or were they chosen for you and then you worked with them to decide on stories that would fit within that kind of arc? Um, well, we we pitched the idea, the framing, hmm. the framing idea, and then they um, they asked if they could use it for that format. So we weren't actually pitching for that format, but that hmm. was what we ended up doing. And um, so, yes, all these the other writers were um, were in, invited in by by them rather than us. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so that was that was nice. Got you know all these other folk, and we did these little. Um, you know, bridging scenes in the context of their stories as well. So, mm. uh, yeah, it was it was a nice experience. And and even within that anthology, the other stories reflect the main plot. They're either about 
uh, a character being imprisoned or about a character telling stories. Was that something that you pitched to the other writers that there should be this kind of reflection going on? I can't remember. No, honestly. <laughs> well, it works really well, so take credit for it. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I'm going to assume that we did. I'm just going to take credit for that and, and, and hope that, that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like I said, uh, you know, we've we've spoken about the um, uh, Nostradamus one, but both the the Nostradamus tale and. Um, uh, tomb ship are both very much kind of like high concept stories it's like the elevator mm-hmm. pitch okay so we have an egyptian tomb on a spaceship there's a group of uh explorers who are happy to kind of kill each other off and there's a bomb on board i mean it really feels like <laughs> you went in with the high concept pitch when you were coming up with the idea yeah that's all me <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm a high concept girl <laughs> i nice. love that stuff uh so yeah i'm, I'm definitely I definitely like those kind of those kind of stories. It's just you know you can fit, you can put the doctor in any of these kind of scenarios, and the, and the fun thing about it is the doctor doesn't you know if you put Indiana Jones in that scenario, it would be a very different story. Right. But if you put Doctor Who in it, then it's um, it's something else, and uh, you know the doctor doesn't use violence in the same sort of way, and it's you know it's got a, a whole different take on those what is a kind of standard scenario but the doctor makes it I feel a bit a bit fresh mm. and I guess even with um with Doctor Who a bit like I was saying uh with something like Judge Anderson I guess you also have to um adhere to any continuity that's going not going on not only within the long history of Doctor Who itself but with recent releases at Big Finish, because uh, towards the end of Tomb Ship, we find out that a kind of um, mayfly companion uh, who was introduced in the previous serial, Hannah Bartholomew, comes back mm. in your story. Um, was that something that you asked for, or was it something that the people at Big Finish asked you to do? No, um, no, that was introduced in a redraft. Okay. Um, so they decided um, at Big Finish after um, after we turned in the first draft because. You know, what we'd really like to do is um, find a way for this character to join you. And we're like, well, look, <laughs> they're, kind of, they're kind of locked in this place they can't get out of. And uh, she'll have to be there from the beginning um, and then sort of just appear. Mm. So we actually rewrote the whole story with her and it throughout. Um, and then they said, no, no, we don't want it. So we did, they just cut all of that <laughs> after at the end. Uh, so, yeah, so, so we really tried to embrace it, but um, hmm. that wasn't what they wanted. But, uh, yeah, she, she was a great character. Mm. So it, it was really fun to write. I agree. It's a shame that they didn't keep her on uh, beyond the story after yours. Um, spoiler warnings mm. to anyone who hasn't heard it. But um... <laughs> <laughs> And do you think um, uh, either by yourself or with Gordon, you might write any more uh, Doctor Who audios? Um, I certainly like to. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've certainly spoken to um, the script editor on Barnes here about doing some more, but um, yeah, we've just not not really had had time recently. But certainly, yeah, I'd be up to doing more. It's great fun, cool. and it's it's a nice discipline you know, to do to do audio. You know, working in different um, different disciplines really strengthens your writing. You know, with audio, it's all you have to describe things by the character's reactions and make it sound natural. And that's really hard. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's no one announcing when they walk into a particular room. So they have to do it in a way that doesn't sound 
really stupid every single new scene um, that establishes where they are and who they're talking to and who's in the room and all those things that you would do visually without anyone saying a word you have to say through dialogue and mm. um, so so from a, a writer's perspective in addition to it being Doctor Who it's also um, it's also a nice challenge and you know flexes the old writing muscles so yeah <laughs> I enjoy it and presumably you do write kind of instructions to the sound designer. We hear the Doctor and Nyssa walk into an enormous chamber that's 100 feet tall, uh, made yeah. out of sandstone with sliding rock walls or whatever. <laughs> well, you just write in the sound effects as you go. Um, so, yeah, the, the sound effects just kind of get their own, their own lines, I think. I can even remember now. It's mm. been a while. Um, but yeah, I think the uh, the sound effects just go in like dialogue and they, they add them in. So I think we we add extra instruction where it's harder to describe what <laughs> you know, like a sliding wall, you know, might be in a particular material or whatever it is, you might add in a little bit more. But mm. um, yeah, there's not really uh, any room for description per se you have to do it all within the context of um, of the script as you go because mm. i was just wondering if there was any similarity with writing comics in that sense that if you're writing survival geeks you might put in a you know a line that's addressed to neil saying i'd like you to draw an enormous convention center that's filled with every character that we've ever thought of from sci-fi go for it and then you might write uh, a line to the the sound designer in a Doctor Who script saying you know we hear the sound of 16th century earth with giant crocodiles walking about <laughs> <laughs> no no there's, there's not a lot in common okay huh. um, yeah it's literally you, you know that would be that would be you need a very specific instruction for a sound designer you know it's mm. got to be breathing footsteps um studying footsteps or you know um, gunfire, click of um, shotgun, those kind of things. So, you know, it's very, very specific um, things that you put in rather than a general mood board. <laughs> so <laughs> I think for, um, you know, Doomsday Call Train, I think when we had to do the market, so we'd list the sort of sound effects. And I think they, they added in some more as well. They kind of got just from it. So I, I don't know if we just sort of put market sounds, but um, and people speaking Italian. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's things you put in that you have to be, you know, expected to be very specific um, on what the actual noises are. And every time you hear them, you have to put in the script where they occur. So it's quite, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> I wish it were so put the noise in where you want, but that's, that's not generally the way it's expected to be done. Mm. And when you're writing uh, for something like Doctor Who, I mean, I guess in a way also like writing for John Janderson, um, is some of the idea that you're pitching based on, well, they've not covered this kind of story before. And particularly with Doctor Who, I guess, this is the kind of story they could have never afforded on TV. But as we've got, in inverted commas, a $100 million budget on audio, <laughs> we can come up with things that they never could have afforded on TV in the 80s. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to a certain extent, I mean, I... Yeah, certainly the you know there's nothing you can't do in audio as long as you can hear it. Um, but yes, yeah, so we're doing you know huge crocodile like <laughs> monsters um, and uh, all of those weird things and having a planet 
turn into goo and all those <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, you could do it. It would be expensive. You could do it. Um, certainly, you could probably do most things with, with the special effects and the budget that the BBC have now. But it's nice to to not feel restrained on, on that front. Uh, I mean, same with, same with comics. You know, you, you have less restraint other than your artist's um, patience and tolerance, really. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's all, it's all possible. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, do, I try to come up with ideas that, that will maintain my enthusiasm and interest for as long as it takes me to write it. That's really the most important thing for me is to... <laughs> but I want I want to read it. I want to write it. I, I can't wait to write it. You know, those are those are my criteria. <laughs> so um, that tends to make it a lot more enjoyable for anyone experiencing at the other end. Indeed, cool. Thank you very much. The three Doctor Who productions by Emma Beebe and Gordon Rennie, A Thousand and One Nights and Tomb Ship with Peter Davison, and the Doomsday Quatrain with Sylvester McCoy are available as CD and MP3 downloads from BigFinish.com. If you go to BigFinish.com and type Emma BB into the search bar, that's B-E-E-B-Y, then you can find the three productions written by Emma and Gordon. And in next month's special episode of Panel Borders, the monthly radio show on comics and graphic novels, I'll be talking to Emma alongside a half-dozen of other 2000 AD creators about the galaxy's greatest comic, and that'll be broadcast at 5.30 on the first Wednesday in August. As well as offering new versions of classic Doctor Who, as seen on TV and unseen on TV, each of the writers of the three productions being discussed in tonight's show offer an actor new to playing the Doctor as well. Word of Mouth Productions present a young man as a teenage doctor, having adventures before he left Gallifrey. One of Emma Beebe's serials, A Thousand and One Nights, presents the evil sultan, played by Alexander Siddig, trying to take over the role of the doctor, and not doing a very good job of it. And in the third interview of this evening's show, Christian Eriksson will be talking about recasting the fifth doctor as the musical lead in his concept album, The Caves. In this unusually gritty and doom-laden serial of Doctor Who, The Caves of Androzani, which was to be Peter Davison's final adventure as the Doctor, the Doctor and Perry, played by Nicola Bryant, find themselves on a post-apocalyptic world where disenfranchised miners are under the thumb of a crazed Phantom of the Opera-type character called Sharaz Jack. In the concept album adaptation of The Caves of Androzani, called simply The Caves, Christian Eriksson takes on the role of Jack, alongside Jeremy Messersmith as the Doctor, and Angela Duckliski as his companion. Instead of mimicking the sound of Doctor Who itself at the time, i.e. the radiophonic workshop, Christian has looked to 1980s synth bands like Vangelis and Tangerine Dream for inspiration, and to give you a flavour of The Caves by his band The Sever Team, here's an extract from the track I Would Crash This Ship to save my friend. You can try, try to stop me. No matter what you're going down with me, I will crash this ship to save my friend. We're going back. 
I'm not sure how I found out about the album. It seemed to be featured on loads of kind of Doctor Who fan sites and sci-fi sites. So I guess uh, you must be pleased with the exposure it's been getting. Yeah, it's been amazing. I had like just a couple strokes of luck where um, I I don't like to just like randomly tag people, you know, like in uh, posts. But I did um, tag Nicola Bryant uh-huh. in the original post about it. And then she retweeted it. And I think... Um, that actually was how it started getting into the hands of people who actually understood what it was, right? <laughs> and were sort of uh, interested. So I think I just I got lucky that um, that she saw it and just posted and said, "Oh, this looks cool," and and it kind of went from there. Nice. Um, so on on the website uh, for the album, the seventeen dot com, uh, you're very careful to not mention any various yeah. copyright baiting uh, words. Is it, is it okay yeah. for me to discuss it or would you like me oh, to? Yeah. Leave? Okay, fine. No, no, of course. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just, I, uh, it's been obviously all the context and like all the reviews and all the stuff has been, in, and, and on, and on uh, Twitter and stuff, I've been totally clear about like, this was what influenced. I just didn't mm. want the site itself and like the album itself to like violate anyone's intellectual property right because the intent was that it's a piece of ultimately like a piece of fan art Mm. uh, and kind of has its own own life so the main reason i did is just because i'm trying to not get in any trouble i I just want people to hear it and like it (laughs) yeah indeed (laughs) although perhaps you left it a little bit too late to audition for the role of the new composer for the tv series (laughs) yeah exactly when i saw it when i saw that i was like oh that guy's got a cool job (laughs) i'm excited for that cool Excellent. So you mentioned uh, Nicola Bryant um, because uh, the album that you've created is a concert album homage to The Caves of Androzani, which was a Doctor Who serial from the mid-80s, which featured Nicola as the companion Perry. Um, Correct, yes. How how on earth did this project come about? What made you think the world needs a kind of uh, ambient remix of uh, a Doctor Who serial? Well, so the idea has been kind of floating around in my head for, I mean, almost two decades. Mm -hmm. And it kind of started with with, uh, back when I was in a totally different band. Um, uh, I obviously had always been a fan. I grew up being a fan. That one was always one of my all time favorites. Um, Like uh, in the U.S., most of us who started um, watching the show in the uh, 80s, we were – Everyone's really all about Tom Baker because mm. uh, the fourth Doctor stories were the ones that were running in repeats here constantly on public television. Um, so Peter Davison was the first Doctor that I followed all the way through from beginning to end, right? Like like I, I saw when the regeneration happened and then I saw when he um, transitioned sort of three years later. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the era where my fandom was at its highest. Um, and then that story in particular, the reason why I thought it would be cool is not just because I thought it was great and it was my favorite, but because um, like Robert Holmes had famously said that he was, it was meant to sort of be a, like a sci-fi take on the Phantom of the Opera, mm. which of course had at the time already been turned into this giant musical. Um, and so uh, always floating around in my head was like, yeah, actually this thing has that sort of um, high drama and really, really interesting characters and really interesting themes that would make a good um, kind of music piece of, of some kind. So anyway, so I, I thought about it for a long time. I flirted with writing a couple songs way, way back when, and then it just kind of sat around for over 10 years as like a, Oh, wouldn't it be cool to do that someday? Um, and then I guess I finally, with the encouragement of some 
other people, I finally got around to actually doing it. <laughs> mm. And it's interesting that as a kind of fan homage, uh, like we've mentioned, it's kind of in this gray area where you leave the website itself ambiguous. Were you tempted at all to release it commercially or did you think actually the best way to treat this is as a fundraiser that people can download it for free and then hopefully you'll earn some money for uh, Doctors Without Borders? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I did it as a um, as a fundraiser was not necessarily to avoid the the perception of, of kind of making money off of someone's property. It was more that... Um, so we did this. Um, one of the other reasons why I wanted to do it and why I'm glad I waited this long to do it is because over the years, if you're a musician, you just start to accumulate like gear, right? You, <laughs> you have musical instruments, you start to have, you know, like like uh, technology at your disposal. And it's all technology that if you're like an electronic musician, the technology that you have now is beyond your wildest dreams of what you, you know, what you wish you had when you were younger. So point is, um, we have a very functional like home studio and most of this was done at home and it really didn't cost us anything in, in real money um, to make. We didn't go into any studios or do any of that kind of stuff. So my, my feeling is like it didn't cost me anything. I really just want people to hear it because I'm excited about it. Um, but I also don't think that um, – I don't want to perpetuate the idea that music should be free, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think artists should be compensated. Um, so we just adopted kind of a just pay it forward model, which is we're not making money off this. We have no need or desire to make money off of this. However, art does have value. And if that value can be used to generate value for someone else, um, that's what it's going to do. So so that's why we, we chose the um, – and also, you know, I mean, I'm a big believer in the cause, and because it's called Doctors Without Borders, there's mm. a there's a conceptual tie-in kind of <laughs> with with the program. Um, so it just seemed to it made sense. Mm. Well, and actually, that also ties in with other Doctor Who fan fiction that there obviously comes a cutoff point where it's okay if you're making, say, a photocopied zine about Doctor Who. The BBC don't look twice at you, yep. you know, charging a couple of quid for it. But when it comes to, say, uh, book-length anthologies, then the tradition always has been, or at least always seems to have been, if you're going to charge a, a fiver or more for a book-length connection, then all the profits go to charity, and then the BBC seem to turn a blind eye. Right. And, and that was the funny thing is I wasn't actually that since I haven't been that involved in, in fandom mm. actually, as much as I was, um, back then, um, I wasn't really aware, but, but I just, I did a, I did a cursory kind of look around and just said, um, how to, you know, cause every, every kind of, um, property that has rabid fans sort of deals with this in different ways. Right. You know, like, like Disney's very particular about what you do with star Wars and mm -hmm. things like that. Right. And, and I, I just kind of came to that conclusion, which is like, well, I see a lot of, um, fairly ambitious things being done within the doctor who universe that don't seem to Right. That don't run afoul of that. They're taken in the spirit of like, this is really a tribute. And it's something that um, was is influenced by this this piece of work. Right. But it was mm. not meant to um, kind of rip it off or do anything mm. like that. Well, I mean, the irony is that um, you got some. Uh, free publicity from Nicola Bryant and yeah. one of the things that she did in the 80s with Colin Baker is to do their own series which riffed off Doctor Who called The Stranger where she played a character called Ms Brown in order to get around copyright and he was never mentioned by name. 
You know what's funny? I had no idea about that. I've never heard of really? that. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's... that is cool. That is cool, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess um, uh, a, a few people must have felt that Colin deserved more of, more time as the Doctor and so yeah. decided to make these fan films with, with him and Nicola shaving the serial numbers off, as it were. That is amazing. No, I, well, actually, I was one of those people. I know there was, especially at the time, there was a lot of people that did not care for him at all. Mm. Uh, but I, I actually um, thought he was super entertaining, and um, I, I did, I did love the character. I thought it was good. In terms of uh, the music, it's uh, kind of it's very ambient, but it does have this storyline, obviously, going through it. Since you're basing it on something that has a narrative. Um, mm-hmm. I listened to a couple of tracks uh, by yourself and by uh, the astronaut's wife, which seem to be a bit more up-tempo. And obviously yeah. I haven't listened to everything you've recorded, so that may not be representative of your style in general. But certainly did you feel that with this uh, project it needed to be kind of less high energy and more of a uh, an ambient piece because it's something that is telling a narrative? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was tr- what I was trying to do was kind of... Um almost expo- so uh, of uh, over the course of whatever 30 years of making music like i've done all kinds of stuff and i've been in all kinds of different types of bands so like for a while i was in just a pure rock band just pure rock and roll three guitars like you know uh, big big rock um obviously yeah with uh, astronaut wife we were doing more of like an electronic pop thing i was in this kind of like almost gothic folk band for a while. Um, so so what I was trying to do with this one, I think, was actually to just explore a few different kinds of styles, right? So it wouldn't just be like a pure upbeat record, but you would have, as if as if it were a musical or a, a, a stage play, you, you kind of want uh, there to be sort of ups and downs and different um, different sort of techniques musically, right, as, as you go. So I kind of just had this thought of, yeah, we're going to need one that's kind of like a dance, more of a dance number. We're going to mm-hmm. need a few that are just really sort of sad ballads. I knew like immediately that there was going to be a song about the death and regeneration bit at the end, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't. How could you resist um, <laughs> writing about a scene like that or a or a piece of a story like that? Um, so so it was more that um, when we were doing those, when I was in those other bands, we sort of had this specific aesthetic that we were trying to um, create. Whereas this one, I was trying to maybe explore a bunch of different um, a bunch of different kinds of aesthetics. Almost put every every genre I've ever sort of worked in, put it all together um, in one um, in one thing. Mm. And what was nice as well about you picking those kind of genres is rather than it, say, reflecting the music of the show at the time, it seemed to be reflecting uh, music that kind of had science fictional connotations from the early 80s, such as, um, I don't know, Tangerine Dream and Vangelis' soundtracks for sci-fi movies. Yeah. And that was totally deliberate. I got, I've told a couple of people, they're like, Oh, so what, what records, you know, or in, influenced you. And uh, one of the ones that came out, um, while I was just getting back uh, started on this idea was the, uh, planetarium. Are you familiar with that, no. that record? It's a Sufjan Stevens and a bunch of other, uh, people did this kind of concept album that was about the, the planets, basically hmm. a big, big kind of like, um, indie rock release from, uh, uh, at least over here uh, from last year. And they did a lot of stuff where they combined um, sort of um, orchestral stuff with, uh, 
you know, arpeggiated analog synthesizers and just, you know, things like that, that, that gave it that sort of almost like updated version of what you're talking about, that kind of Vangelis or Tangerine Dream kind of thing. And I was just way, way um, into that. And I've always been into that type of synthesizer music. So I think what I was trying to do is do something that is, um, yeah, that felt like modern music, but definitely had, um, you know, uh, clear, um, signals of that, of that sort of era, right? Like I wasn't trying to do like an eight, like a pastiche of eighties music per se, but I wanted to clearly show that that was heavily influential to me, um, and made that part of the aesthetic. Hmm. And the band that you've put together for this, I guess it's kind of um, a super group of the Minnesota indie scene um, in terms of uh, getting those people together and casting them. Um, How did they feel when you approached them for the project? For example, how did Jeremy feel when you asked him if he'd play the doctor? (laughs) Well, so uh, Jeremy is probably, um, um, I mean, among especially in our area, but frankly, in the U S probably one of the better known people, uh, that's on the, the record. He's a, he's a big, uh, well-known like indie rock, um, indie pop, uh, sort of folk singer songwriter, um, in his own right has done some stuff. He's a well-known, um, sort of sci-fi nerd and convention <laughs> goer, um, and a, and a friend of ours. So it actually was the easiest pitch in the world. I just, I just <laughs> sent him a note. I said, um, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Um, it's kind of whatever and and um having different people sing effectively like the songs that are based on different characters i want you to sing the doctor and he was like yep (laughs) right i'll I'll come over and do it um and in fact i kind of knew that i wanted him to do it because i knew that the pete that the songs that the the parts of the story that involved the the doctor were probably going to be the ones where the songs were more the ballads. And he is a very kind of like just pure, um, pure voiced kind of ballad, uh, singer. Um, so that, so I, so he was the first person I asked, um, and that got it off to a really, really good start. Cause I was like, okay, I already got the one person that I really wanted to sing these tunes to say, yes, now I just have to get a few, a few other people. Um, so, but yeah, every, everyone, not everyone I involved was, is necessarily a huge, um, Dr. Who fan, but they are almost all of them very big, um, sci-fi fans in general. Um, so they totally understand. And they're, most of them are people that I've kind of worked with either a lot or a little over the years. Um, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy pitch. They were like, Oh sure. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds fun and cool. And we had a lot of fun just having them come over and record and stuff like that. Hmm. And have you also tried the album out on people who aren't Doctor Who fans at all, who might not know anything about it? Um, yes, but I, but not as much. Only just because the minute I, um, the minute it started to uh, gain traction with um, fans, especially in the UK, mm. um, it it then it was all of the reviews and all that stuff were clearly written by people who understood more of the uh, fan context. Mm. Um, but, but also really, really liked the music. Um, I will say here in the Minneapolis area, again, because, um, almost everyone involved in this is a fairly well-known, um, musician, um, in this town, there have been a lot of people that, have said, I, I really like this record. I don't get anything about Dr. <laughs> Who at all, but I think it's cool. So I guess the point is, um, 
I've found that it has appeal to those people and mm. that they definitely kind of um, like it and understand it and think it's um, interesting. But I haven't really done that much yet to promote it through mm. just reg- to just regular like um, like indie music fans. Um, so we might still do that, especially if we do like vinyl or we put mm. out some kind of physical product. Um, we might do that. But I would say, yeah, the reaction has mostly been from people who are both music fans and Doctor Who fans. But occasionally someone has popped up and said, yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about this source material, but I do, I do enjoy these songs. So <laughs> I, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. It's just that obviously it is a different experience because listening to it as a fan, um, it has been a number of years since I last watched the Caves of Androzani. But obviously, when I listen to it, I then do kind of recall images from the yeah. show. So you do yeah. this kind of double take. You listen to it, but you also associate it with the memories you have of the program. Yeah. Well, and in fact, that's actually how I wrote it because uh-huh. a bunch of people have asked me like, oh, OK, so, you know, how many times did you watch the show while you're doing this? And the answer is zero. Hmm. I actually did it mostly from what you're talking about, which is more this kind of impression in my mind of what it was right to, to me. Like um, and that's why I think the songs have maybe in some cases a slightly different interpretation of the actions or the characters because one, because I just wanted to make it a little bit more my own or, you know, have them be not just songs that, that just repeat the dialogue, right. From the, mm. the story, but kind of like explore sort of different angles. So actually the muddiness of my memory of it was very useful because I, you know, you, I could kind of picture like, Oh, here's all the characters here were their motivations here. And again, back then I did, I did watch that episode like a thousand times. So <laughs> I, I, it is deeply embedded in my memory. So it was only at the very, toward the very end of the project that I actually opened up the, uh, target, novelization (laughs) just to basically it was mostly just to check do I have the elements of this story kind of like in the right order because there were things that I couldn't remember like did this happen before this thing and and, and what happened Um, so I used it as a reference but I actually have um, to this day still not watched it again Um, I was thinking about um, because I think it's going to be on the Twitch stream Hmm. Um, yeah. coming up soon. So I was thinking about actually watching it um, on Twitch uh, when it comes up. But but anyway, I, th- all that was just to say, like you were saying, I'm, I hope that it triggers that kind of weird, fuzzy memory in people that, that have a vivid memory of it, because that's actually how I, how I made it. Mm. Well, and I really like that as an idea, because people talk about things like Doctor Who, like superheroes, all of these modern genres that have very much captivated audiences as modern myths. But in order for something to become a myth, it needs to be retold in a way. Um, So you're doing that. And and what it reminded me of was, um, I don't know if uh, this play toured America, but a couple of years ago in Britain, there was a sci-fi play that was put on, I think, at the Royal Court in London. And it was set after the apocalypse. And it was a band of travelling performers who went from town to town reenacting their memories of episodes from The Simpsons. And so oh I like the idea of, you know, after... I mean, hopefully society doesn't fall. But, but if society did fall, then these yeah. kind of ideas would then become the myths that then became the focus of travelling storytellers. And I and to me that's that's very cool and I think it's a it's an interesting um, thing to think about in a um, so like discussions of this kind of thing 
have changed so much over the years, right? Because if you're a fan of something now, you have almost immediate access to that thing, right? Like you don't actually need, you don't really need memories. You can just go look it up on the internet. And like, you know, like we, we used to, like when you would remember dialogue incorrectly from movies, <laughs> right? And you would go around quoting something and then years later you'd see that movie and you'd realize, oh, I've had that quote wrong this whole time, right? Yeah. Um, that doesn't happen anymore because there's always someone on the internet to send you a link and say, uh... That's not what they say, you know, in the, in the thing. Um, so yeah, I, I love that idea of like, um, uh, sort of reinterpretation of things. And, and I've, I've said this before to people, like, I think that there's this split, um, right now in fan culture mm. between this idea of sort of purity versus this idea of like constant reinvention. And I am always in favor of the reinvention. There are all these things where people will be like, why are they remaking movie X? Mm. Uh, that's ruining my childhood. Mm. That, that's the kind of catchphrase. Like you ruined my childhood by remaking a thing. It's like, no, that thing still exists and your childhood still exists. But if somebody else wants to take that property or that idea or that character and do something else interesting with it, I think, you know, that should be embraced and you don't have to like it, but you, um, but why, why just like hold it up, um, you know, carve it in stone and then hold it up and say that can never change. Right. So like mm. the whole debate over Luke Skywalker or the whole debate over, um, Jody Whittaker or any of these things where it's like, well, I see this thing in a very particular way and I can't get past the idea that it's going to be fundamentally different from now on, um, to me is bizarre. Right. And so I, I would rather participate in, the idea of reinterpretation and retelling of ideas um, versus just um, holding them up as as some kind of precious object. So anyway, that was a bit of a rant, but uh, <laughs> but it's but it's something that I think is an important conversation because fandom has started to get um, very out of control. Mm. I think um, in some circles, right, and with some specific properties like Potter and Star Wars, Star Wars, and yeah, whatever to some extent. Indeed. Hmm. In terms of the process of adaptation, though, um, obviously, like you said, it's based on memory, but you're boiling down a four episode serial, 100 minutes of story yeah. into 12 songs and four musical interludes, most of which actually are monologues uh, rather than dialogues. Yes. So in terms of doing that, could you talk a little about your process? Yeah, I think what it was, was I had, um, so when I thought about the story, I thought about, um, there were kind of five or six things, five or six events in the story that I knew would be like really great songs, right? I didn't, I hadn't written the songs. <laughs> I was, this was just my idea of it. It's like, okay, what are the things that would really, uh, make, uh, good songs. So one was the opening song was actually the one song that I had written almost 20 years previous um, when I first attempted to do this called Anywhere in the Universe. And it was all this idea of like, but basically the running Doctor Who gag of, of, hey, we can go anywhere. And yet we ended up in basically like a rock quarry. Right. And that's what um, uh, and so that that was good. I knew there needed to be a story about like the death and regeneration. And then there was just a couple other points where I thought, OK, it'd be really cool to write a song about that scene where um, Timon um, just like turns her boss into the cops. And, mm. and because, uh, and because it's such a contemporary idea of like, um, abusive 
men in power, um, how do you kind of, um, you know, battle against them? Um, and in that story, she really successfully did that. And I think there was a bit of kind of, um, we all have these sort of like revenge fantasies of <laughs> like, God, I just want to see those people get brought down, right? <laughs> or somehow, um, and, or, you know, be brought to justice in some, some way. So anyway, so I had these, uh, sort of touchstone moments that I knew were going to be songs. And so then I just started working on them and then just kind of filling in the blanks from there, sort of saying, well, what's another one? So that like, for instance, the very last song that I wrote, I had uh, 15 songs and I had this um, thought of like, there's something missing here. Um, both from a stylistic perspective of a composition, I kind of wanted something that sounded a particular way or sort of fit into the flow. And then I realized there was one event that I hadn't written about and the song turned into the song that's called, um, I would crash this ship to save mm. my friend because I remembered like, Oh, the pivotal thing is like, he's willing to risk his own life and the life of everyone who's trying to like kidnap him basically, mm. um, to go back and, and, uh, save his friend. And so I thought this idea of, instead of making that this, um, aggressive kind of violent, um, thing that it would be more this kind of, uh, pretty sort of psychedelic, um, <laughs> you know, ballad almost about, I, I just described it as a, you know, it's basically, it's a, it's a psychedelic ballad about, uh, spacecraft sabotage is mm. basically is, is the theme. Um, so anyway, so they just kind of filled in as, you know, as I had the overall idea and then it was just like, oh, this would be a really cool opportunity or, you know, it'd be funny is like, not funny, but you know, what'd be cool is like, what if there was a song where it was just like, um, Morgus just bragging about how rich and powerful he is because he gets <laughs> brought down at the end. So you kind of need to establish at the beginning of the album um, that he thinks very highly of himself and, mm. and that he, right. Um, and so, so that, that was it. It was just, it, it wasn't even, and I know there's sort of like, obviously there are parts of the story that aren't covered in the songs because it's not meant to be like, yeah. a, you know, like you said, it's not meant to be a pure, pure kind of retelling. It's meant to just be um, sort of influenced by or a kind of a um, in, interpreted through um, song. Um, but yeah, it, it anyway, so it was kind of it was a bit random, but um, but I'm happy, I think, with the the bits of the story and the characters that are represented. I think uh, I think that bit turned out well. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the times that Doctor Who has flirted with being a musical, it hasn't been entirely successful. There was the yeah. <laughs> the stage play, uh, The Ultimate Adventure, which I think the less said about the better. Um, and then there was... <laughs> I don't know that much about that. Oh, but... yeah. Just, yeah. Um, and then a few years, well, several years ago now, uh, Big Finish did a four-part serial called Doctor Who and the Pirates, uh, episode four of which was done as a pastiche of HMS Pinafore. Um, right. Okay. And they... <laughs> They just about pulled it off. I think mainly because Colin Baker actually has done Gilbert and Sullivan, so he can he can do it. Uh, but you think, yeah, once is enough. <laughs> um, yeah. So oh, your yeah. your approach, where it is actually kind of at a tangent, I think is a better way of doing it rather than trying to shoehorn singing into a, a a show where it would otherwise feel uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in my mind, as as writing while writing this, there's always. Um, I, I had this uh, sort of mental image of what it would be like to put something like this on stage. Mm. So again, this is another one where it's like, well, you'd have to, I mean, in order to do this, you'd have to actually go and get the rights and you'd have, you know what I mean? Like they'd be very, very complicated, but, but I, I do kind of have this dream, which will probably never get realized around, um, how could you turn this into kind of a multimedia show, mm. uh, that actually incorporates, um, either, um, dialogue, you know, done as a, in a sort of stage play way or incorporates, um, clips or bits from the show. Uh, mm. Right. Um, because I do think there is a way in which this thing could be 
a true sort of musical play um, along with the flow of the regular story, but it would be like just a massive amount of, of work. So that just kind of sits in the back of my head where I can envision what it would look like. <laughs> <laughs> and I think some other people can too, right? They're like, oh, I was picturing this or picturing this. It's like, yeah, yeah, cool. That was, that was kind of the, the intention because it'll probably never happen, but, um, but it's good to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds continues to tour 40 years right. on. So I think yeah, yeah. if you did manage a way of doing it, it probably would have legs. Yeah, it probably it probably take me about 40 years to get it together. <laughs> and then at least based on how long it took me to do this one. But uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe then. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not uh, planning on doing a follow up then like a, a goth pop version of Ghost Light? I, well, you know, it's funny. That's the most common question It's like, oh, are you going to do more more Doctor Who related stuff? And of course, Many people have made the exact same suggestion, which is, are you going to do the twin dilemma next, right? <laughs> which was the episode that immediately followed this. And what's funny is um, a f most of them are joking, but I think a couple people aren't joking <laughs> like when they say that. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, I think... Um, that would just the, be an hour of screaming, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like... <laughs> Um, but, uh, I think, um, so, so I, I've been asked that question and I think, um, I'm of two minds, um, and I don't, don't actually know the answer, which is one, I feel like, you know, we, uh, as from a creative perspective, like you don't really quote, you know, go to the well more than once, mm -hmm. right. In terms of a piece of inspiration, because you're, you, cause whatever you do after then will always be compared to what you did before, mm -hmm. um, in either a good or, or bad way. But then on the other hand, there's so much within this universe, um, that was so kind of, um, important to me, especially growing up. Um, and there is a lot of emotion and, and interest and a lot of interesting stories and interesting bits of inspiration. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out. I would say probably, I mean, I've always written songs that are kind of like about science fiction or like, mm. uh, uh, you know, uh, heavily influenced by it. Um, and so I would say it probably would not take the form of a linear story like this. But it's not to say that I would not do something again that was influenced by that that universe. I, I don't mm. know. You know, well, you could always justify it the way that everyone does these days by saying it was always intended as the first part of a trilogy. Yeah, exactly. I'll just that would be amazing. Like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. So we we actually the the goal is, I'm gonna do yeah. I don't know who knows, but yeah, <laughs> twin dilemma and then whatever. You know. <laughs> nice. Okay, thank you very much. It was uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yes, thank you uh, very much for um, having me. To find downloads of the album The Caves by the Sever Team, please go to theseverteam.com. That's the s-e-v-a-t-e-e-m dot com and any money you contribute to the download of a copy of the album will go to the charity Doctors Without Borders. This is the last in the current series of audio dramatics, however you can download all the previous episodes from our blog panelborders.wordpress.com including episodes looking at adaptations of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells interviews with other Doctor Who alumni such as Lisa Bowerman and Jason Hay-Gallery, producer Dirk Maggs, who works on the radio adaptations of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and a pair of classic Doctor Who actors, Colin Baker, who played the sixth Doctor, and Katie Manning, who played John Pertwee's companion, Joe Grant. As mentioned earlier in the show, on the first Wednesday in August at 5.30pm, 
I'll be talking to Emma Beebe again about her work writing for the British weekly comics periodical 2000 AD, alongside half a dozen other creators from the galaxy's greatest comic. Audio Dramatics was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.